everybody. Welcome to another comic episode of Games My Mom Found. I am Mike Alberton. Who's laughing with me tonight? Uh, the jester of joy himself, Kenneth Sanity, is um, here as well. And before we get too far, why don't you introduce what we're talking about? Because this actually was your idea. All right. So today we're going to be talking about one of the most seminal stories in Batman's history. We are going to be talking about the killing joke. And basically what we're looking at here, this is one of the most personal stories between the Joker and Batman ever written. It used to be posited that this was the Joker's origin story, although there's something that happens later that we'll talk about, I'm sure. But um, this was written by Alan Moore and the art was done by Brian Boland with the coloring by John Higgins. And that's actually kind of important because when this book first came out, John Higgins did the coloring, but they did re-release a deluxe edition where Brian Boland, the original artist, went back and colored it himself. I never understood that in comics, why different people do all different things, but I guess if you're doing a lot of books, it makes sense. Yeah. Or I guess that's what your specialty is or something. Yeah, and it's funny because after this, Brian Boland never really did another story. He did a lot of covers. Okay. But this is like one of the last stories that he did art for. Well, that's interesting. That I didn't, well, I didn't look up any of this stuff, but <laughs> I'm not super educated about the story. And well, this also came out in 1988. We should specify. Ah, uh, yes. 1988. March of 1998, as a matter of fact. And I want to say when this first came out, this wasn't part of, it was like, it wasn't part of the canon of the regular DC universe. It was something else. I think it might have been what they called Vertigo at the time, or the, or my off. Okay, I'm off. Um, this, yeah, this was actually a DC comics. It was published as a one shot. Um, this had pretty much just kind of come about because Brian Boland had been working a lot on like 2000 AD stuff. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with Judge Dredd. Unfortunately, a little bit. Hey, now. All right. But Brian Boland did a lot of work with uh, Judge Dredd and he wanted to do the Joker, essentially. And he viewed uh, drawing Judge Death as like a dry run for drawing the Joker, according to an interview that he did. Okay. I did not know any of that. Well, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, I never heard of 2018. I'm looking it up right now as we're talking. Yeah, not. I never read any Judge Dredd. I just know of it. Well, don't judge it by the movies. The comics are actually. Comics of Judge Dredd are really great satire. Aren't they black and white, too? Yep. A lot I, of them are. Some I of them are colored. But, okay, fair enough. I we were supposed to do a Judge Dredd book actually on this show at one time, but it never happened. So partly because <laughs> they are hard to find <clears throat> online, so it never happened. This but, is true. That was part of it, but also like the Batman Killing Joke. From what I do want to say, that I, I as I was starting, as I was saying, I'm pretty sure this was not like this was supposed to be an out of the context story that wasn't part of the, what was happening or something because Barbara isn't in a wheelchair immediately after this for a little while. If I'm, if I'm correct, it isn't until birds of prey. And I'm not sure what year that is or am I wrong? Yeah, this is no, this, this was kind of an out of uh, temporal area. Like it was just a one shot story. It didn't have any, you know, effect on the continuity at the time. It wasn't necessarily non canon. It was just kind of a, one-off story that just wanted to be told. Okay. that's Yeah, because she doesn't become... No, she becomes Oracle in 1989, Suicide Squad number 23. So I guess they, they went with this pretty quick, not too far then. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm more just kind of spitballing. We're trying to remember stuff that I've heard over the years about this. Yeah, I mean, I there's, there's a lot of stuff that... Um, oh, man, a lot of people have uh, a lot of things to say about this book. And, you know, rightly so. 
it's it's a short book, but the way that the, the first like two page, two three pages of this book or four pages, there's no dialogue. There's nothing. It's just Batman shows up at the asylum, and it just show, panel after panel of him just getting out of his car, going to the asylum. The cops are letting him in, and he's just walking. And he, he walks by Harvey Dent, one of your favorite guys, and yeah, he goes right boy. into the room where Joker has a set of playing cards. And it just starts with a with a joke being said, but none of the characters are saying it to each other. It's just there on the paper. It says there were these two guys in a lunatic in a lunatic lunatic asylum. That's all it says. <laughs> and from there, it just kind of goes to an oddly touching heart to heart between Batman and the Joker, just about the inevitability of death between the two of them, how they're going to be locked in the struggle forever, and somebody's going to die. There's no way that it's going to end otherwise. And he just wants to go to the Joker's cell and try to talk things out. It's a weird scene, but you are right. It is very, it's very intimate. And it also kind of really speaks to these two characters. I know Joker's first appearance is Batman number one in the original Batman run. I do know that. But I can't, I know, if I remember correctly, again, my my memory, I'm not the biggest comic reader. I know Joker disappears for a long time after that, before he shows back up in Neil Adams, is it? With that famous cover of Batman on the playing card? Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. It's uh, Batman 251, 1973. So yeah, he disappeared for a bit. I guess he only had a four-year disappearance. That's not very long. Yeah, but I mean, in comic worlds, it is kind of... I'm just, I'm just kind of, you know, I, I know he changed a lot. Like I've seen that book so many times, the uh, number two fifty one, because it's the first Bronze Age appearance of Joker. It's worth a lot, some money. <laughs> oh yeah, and the funny thing is, the reason that um, he started appearing less frequently was there was an editor of Batman Comics, um, Julius Schwartz, who really didn't like the Joker, so he just stopped having him in the comics. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, that happens a lot, though. Like, I know more recently with DC Comics, Dan Didio wasn't a big fan of, like, Kid Flash and, and that group. So he felt like they were unnecessary since you had the other characters. Yeah, and it's that, it's that kind of thinking that keeps the Joker one of Batman's biggest villains. Like, I'm just saying, give other people a chance to shine. Like, you know, Two-Face or <laughs> Okay, I just wanted to get that background out of what I did know about the Joker. And I also want to say that there was no... I want to say that it was never told, but I could be wrong in that one. I again, I I don't know enough about him. Oh no, there was a 1951 origin story portraying him as a failed comedian pressured in committing crime as the Red Hood to support his pregnant wife. Yep that that was there even before Killing Joe. Yeah, but um, that was you know even then that wasn't you know the Joker. That was just the origin of the Red Hood. Okay, and essentially what this book did was kind of co-opt that. Was the Red Hood a character besides just being the Joker? Do you know? Like, the way they present it in the book is that the Red Hood was just, like, a mantle that people wore. And, like, when the mob needed something to be done, they just, you know, found somebody to do the job and put the Red Hood on them. So that the Red Hood was a stable character, even though it was a different person every time. Okay. And Detective Comic 168 is the first appearance of the Red Hood. I'm just Googling yeah. random stuff to kind of <laughs> give us some background before we really dive into the story. Yeah, that was February 1961, 1951. Sorry. Okay. I've seen that cover before. Yeah. Okay. And, and that that's where was... his origin story is, too. The original one. Yeah. The original one. And I don't know. I never personally liked that as an origin story. I 
I've never seen the original book or read it, but I just I'm not crazy about the idea of the Red Hood. I really don't like the costume in general. Oh, it's a dopey costume. But I think that's the point. Like, he looks like a tube of lipstick wearing a tuxedo. Yeah. Like, there's a really cool book that I would buy, the first appearance of the Red Hood. Jason Todd is a Red Hood. But that's the cover, so I've never bought the book. Yeah. <laughs> I hate the cover. And Jason Todd Red Hood is a different story completely. Jason oh, yeah. Todd Red Hood is interesting. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I wanted to buy that book so bad, because I used to run into the artist that did that did the cover for, or did that book. He lived. He lives in Minnesota, and I ran into him multiple times at conventions. And he used to come to a store I worked at, and I would talk to him. And so I always wanted to get the book so I could get him to sign it. Oh, nice! So I never did because I didn't want to spend eighty dollars on the book, but <laughs> I always wanted to. I don't know. That seems like something that would be worth it. But that's just me. What do I know? I mean, I have spent money on books. <laughs> More important characters, like first appearance of Vision, first appearance of Hawkeye. I have those hanging above me as we're as we're talking. But that was a different. So back to the killing joke, <laughs> now that we got that or little basic information I wanted out before we went too far in, as you were saying, how he's sitting there, he's talking to him about death and there and he just, and Joker just keeps putting down the cards. And for some reason he grabs Joker's hand. And I like that part when he grabs it and all of a sudden the, the white makeup comes off on his glove. And that's when he realizes this is not the Joker. Yeah. And then in the next scene, you know, Batman starts to get all kind of up and you know, air quotes, Joker's grill. <laughs> and um, you definitely see that. No, this is not the Joker. He doesn't have a guest smile. He's got a green wig. There's been an old switcheroo here. I, I do love that part where commissioners like, don't hurt. You can't harm a hair on his head. And he just hands him the wig. <laughs> commissioner, <laughs> like if you're so concerned about it, it's yours. Take care of it. That, that's harm- my Batman voice. <laughs> It's cool. Like, it's a cool little scene that really sets the tone that, you know, of the Joker, where he just, you know, he escaped from the from the asylum, but he tricked everyone. They don't even know he's out. And then it jumps to where Joker's at, like, this really messed up carnival, and some guy's trying to sell it to him. It's an interesting way to kind of start it, where it shows, like, I guess what's considered freak at, like, old in the old carnival setting, like, what, the 1930s or so would this have been? Yeah, well, I mean, ish. 30s, 40s, the freak shows at the carnivals and uh, traveling circuses, those were really popular. Basically, just a way for people to leer at other people that aren't like them, which is really gross. Yeah, I, I don't like it. Like, in the, I, when I, I, I mean, I follow history a lot and I know it's a, it's a thing. It was a thing back then, but it just, yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. I agree. It's very gross. And just, again, people, some people are just trash. So. And I just couldn't remember what year that those things that were. I know like this comic kind of jumps around and it feels like it's taking place in the fifties. The vibe I got when you get the flashbacks. Yeah. And yet there's the modern technology that is very much not the fifties. And yeah. like, it's, it's timely, but in a sense, timeless. Like this could have been at any point because, you know, you're basically dealing with Joker's origin story here. And you just never get the sense that you're getting the whole story. I think part of it is supposed to be, at least the way that I interpret it, is that it's, t- it's like 10 or 12 years before whatever year you are with the Joker's origin. Because we'll, we'll get there, but they also show Batman, very early Batman in this, how he played his part. So that's how I kind of always took it. Like, it, I mean, I know it's technically supposed to play face in probably the 40s, maybe, because that's when the Batman comic was, but... At the same time, they make a they make a comment about they never say how many years it's been, but it feels like they're refer- it's they only been Batman for what twelve fifteen years tops because <clears throat> he's only I mean in all honesty like in the comics if he becomes Batman in twenty and when you have Batman where you're currently at with the, after the multiple Robins he can't be more than in his forties 
if that can't be that old. That's all. But I know. <laughs> but that's you know that's a weird thing about these two characters. I mean, both of them are just they're timeless. They're ageless. They're always going to be the same age, no matter what times change, whatever stories they end up in. They're always going to be whatever age they need to be for the story. So what did what did you think of, of the of the flashback, the very noir stuff, like the first time you see it where he's kind of crying to his wife because he didn't get the or not really not crying, but that's how I've taken it, where he's very upset and he kind of flips out on her. But if he only like there's no color except where a few things are red, like the crawfish are red and there's, there's like a bandana that's like orange, like only a few things have color. Yeah. And that to me just reminded me a lot of uh, Frank Miller's style in Sin City. And, uh, <laughs> well, no, it's just, you know, just an, as an art style, having the black and white with the splash of color, it brings focus to things. And when you're looking at things that are in color, they're not important at all. No, like I was wrong. They're not crawfish in this scene. I don't know what the hell is in that bowl. It's not we'll important. Say tentacles. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It does look like an octopus tentacle. What the fuck were they eating? <laughs> I don't know, man. Calamari's good. But, like... It's just, it's interesting to me that the least important things in the scene are the ones that have the color, but everything else is in black and white, almost like one of those old, like, serial movies. Okay. I never really, I I stay away from black and white stuff. I mean, black and white stuff, it's, you know, just, it was an old timey thing. So it kind of gives the flashback more of an aged feel to it. No, it fits well with the comic. I just, I'm talking more like TV stuff and movies. I won't watch anything black and white. I just can't do it. That's a personal thing. Fair enough. <laughs> different strokes, different folks. Yeah. But it is really like the way they use the black and white going into the color, like the past and the modern day, like mirroring the poses and the flashback to the modern day in full color. That's really cool. Like, I really, I love the way they do this because there's a lot of like at the end of the flashback, the comic is reaching out to his wife. And then the next panel is showing the Joker reaching his hand out to a laughing clown machine. Oh. That you like put a her in and it does something dumb. You put a penny in. Oh, a penny. <laughs> I know. Not, you, know you gotta get the year right. Uh, but the thing that I gotta the thing that creeped me out in this panel is when you see her smile, because he tells a he tells a joke, which I'm gonna read the joke, where he says, I just want enough money to get set up in a decent neighborhood. There are girls on the street who earn that in a weekend without having to tell a single joke. And then she starts laughing, but her face, just that laugh, just it's creepy to me. Oh, no, it is. And the line, and, too. Honey, don't worry, but not not about any of it. I still love you. You know, job or no job, you're good in the sack. And it just it's an odd and you know how to make me laugh. It's just a very odd little scene. But also like one thing that that I should mention, the Joker is narrating the story to us. So it's one of those questions like in literature where it's a narr- can you trust the narrator who's telling you the story? Oh, God, no. Not this one. (laughs) The Joker is definitely the textbook definition of an unreliable narrator. Oh, yeah. And I always took it as also like by her saying that to me, it feels very much like he's putting all those words in because, I mean, women will say things like that. But somebody that's taking place in this time frame, I feel like wouldn't have said that. Uh, It just feels very, you know, a very manly thing. Men are always, you know, going to be more concerned about, oh, I'm good in bed, even though I'm an asshole and beat my wife, but I'm good in bed. Like that same manly, toxic idea. And that's how I that's how I took it as a narrator's you know, oh, yeah. mind to you. Exactly. Like this seems the Joker's origin story, like catered to his personal, you know, feelings and ideals. And, you know, he is in control of the narrative in the black and white here. We don't know exactly what's happening. All we know is what's being told to us in the comic. 
And you're right. It absolutely does seem like this is the Joker's words, the Joker's tone and intonations in this story. Like he's trying to tell us what happened and wants us to believe him, but it does seem a bit off. And then when it jumps back, like you were talking about the clown, you're back at the carnival and you have like this, this weird guy who's trying to sell him the carnival and he gets on a little, like, like a little riding thing to show that it still works or something. And, and then when he shakes his hand, he's like, oh, you don't need to worry. I'm not going to pay you a cent. We already persuaded your partner to sign. And then you see a couple panels away as he walks away and you see that he drugged the guy with some kind of chemical and the guy looks like the joke. Yep. Just a- give him a good old dose of Joker toxin. It is a it's a creepy panel where they just drew his face with a big smile. He's bleeding out of his mouth and everything's just white. It's just it is creepy. Yep, and it's great. And he shows up later in the book. <laughs> Throughout the book, he's just sitting there. They never he never they, ne- they don't do anything about him. They left him there. Yep. And the nice thing is, like I don't know which version you read. I read the one where uh, Brian Boland did the coloring. The I read the version. I read the deluxe version too yep. with the the extra story at the end that we'll talk about. And you can see that as time progresses, that guy starts to look a little worse. Like, he's still white, but you can tell starting to get a little rotty. Oh, I didn't have to look at that while we were talking. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Like the color color changes subtly, like, to show, yeah, he's, he's definitely dead. And <laughs> just left him out there to start going the way that a body would go. There's another, and, and that's a story jump back to Batman, because he has a choker card. He's in the back king. Put the Joker card down next to a portrait, which to me is kind of odd because it has Batman, Batmite, Dick Grayson, Robin, Batgirl. I think that's in her original, original costume, Batdog, and then Batwoman, but not the Batwoman that isn't in the comics later. It's just it's a throwback. I know it's Silver Age, you know, Golden Age, but just weird to me. (laughs) I thought it was fun and a nice way to kind of honor the history of what's come. And then you pull back after he puts the card down and you see that, okay, there's the big Tyrannosaurus, there's two faces, big old coin. And he's at their back computer and just the screen is filled with Joker, various incarnations, various designs of the Joker throughout the years. Which is cool. Yeah, I mean, like this story is really weirdly meta. Like it acknowledges that the Joker has had many different looks throughout the years or different artists have done them. Uh, as personality changes, he gets more manic, and they've they kind of acknowledge all of that. Yeah, it, it's really it, it interesting. Is cool. And in the little scene too, it's mostly in the background. And then I like the part when Alfred Alfred brings his tea or his refreshments, and he's like, and he even says, "How can two people hate hate? How can two people hate so much without knowing each other? Because they don't know anything about the Joker." I think that's right. that's also interesting. And Joker doesn't know, you know, Batman either. And I, I, I do think it's funny that they show the coin there, because when you stop and think about it, Batman and Joker really kind of are two sides of the same coin. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. And like, I feel like that's what this story does immensely. It shows how similar the two are. I, I do like it. And then when it like it cuts back to Gordon cutting out newspaper clippings. This part, you know, I should say spoilers for Killing Joke 1988, and we're going to get a little talking about sexual abuse and things, I'm assuming we might go there. So I'm just going to give a quick warning out that I forgot to mention at the top of this episode, so because we might go there. <laughs> just in case we do. Yeah. It gets, it's, this is a yeah. really, this, this scene, this is a tough scene where he's cutting out the clippings from the newspaper. He's talking with Barbara. She's. You know, a librarian, I guess they they mentioned that and she the door, the doorbell rings. So she goes to the door and one of the clip 
And as she's going through, it shows a clipping that he, that he cut out and he put in his binder. And it has the bat. It's a scene from Batman one when they first ran into each other. And it has Joker there. And I thought that was cool. It's like, oh, what, what, when were they? How many years ago was that? Like, because again, you know, they're not going to mention how long it's been, but I thought that was cool. But when he shows up at the door, he pulls out her. Uh, is that a Magnum or a revolver? It's a revolver of some kind. I'm not a gun guy. I'm not either, but he pulls. And again, his costume, he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt with a camera around his neck. And just like where they where they draw her face and she sees a Joker. You can just see the tear in the drawing before he shoots her right in like what the torso area. With the bullet right I don't know, I'd say probably pelvic area. OK, you're right. More pelvic. Yeah, like low on the spine shot, basically. Yeah. And it's just four panels of her getting shot falling back into the coffee table, crashing through the table, bleeding out on the floor, grimacing in pain. It's fucking, it's hard to read. Uh Like even much, there's just so much that you see happen here. And 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 even then Gordon's uh, first thing he does, he rushes to his daughter, not to try to deal with, you know, the people in the room, like you need to deal with before, but because again, the fatherhood kicks in. And that is also, that is also just powerful in Joker's line. Please don't worry. It's a psychological comp- complaint. Common amongst ex-librarians. You see, she thinks she's a coffee table edition. Like, it's just, it's fucked up. <laughs> and he keeps talking about it, yeah. talking about how, you know, the spine appears to be damaged. There's a hole in the jack. Uh, and then he has the guys, well, the two other henchmen with him, just beat the shit out of Gordon while he's just drinking liquor. He's just very calm, enjoying himself. And then the goons take Gordon. And bring him somewhere. They know where to take him. We don't. All we know is that he's going somewhere. And he's going to be topping the bill. So Joker has something planned for Gordon. And, oh, God, it is not pleasant. No, it's no, it's fucked. It's really it's a fucked up book. And then he starts undressing her. And as he's undressing her, she even like, why are you doing this? And he's like, to prove a point. And then it skips back to the flashback. Of him at a bar, which it looks very 1940s to me because you can see a, a, a sailor in the background in a Navy uniform, which looks very World War II to me. Because, again, I, I like World War II. <laughs> and I like that, like, there's just, they're eating crawfish. And you have a random guy throwing up in one panel. You have a random guy passed out on a table and people drinking. And it, it's, little things are happening around you in the background of these of the Joker, before I become the Joker, talking with these two weird mafia guys. And they present yep. the red hood in a cape. And that is the costume that our comedian friend is going to be wearing on this mob heist that he's doing just, no, he's not a great comedian, but he's trying to set himself up a better life with his wife and their soon-to-be-born child and a better name. So I this do is like what that. We and his whole reasoning for doing it is to he's just trying to take care of his family. He's just trying to get them out of the situation. I, I thought that was a cool motive for, for him to show he wasn't as, you know, psychopath yet. And then yeah. it jumped, when it jumped back to Batman, this whole scene where Batman goes to the hospital and they talk, you know, and he goes to see Barbara and they're like, she was undressed and just and they're like, and we found a, a lens cap, but didn't fit any cameras. And they're like, well, he took some pictures of her and just he crumples the card and you can just see the anger in Batman as he and the way that he drew with I think that's Harvey Bullock, right? Yeah, it kind of looks like him. He's he's disheveled. He's definitely seen better days. He's got a stain on his tie. Like he's Bullock's always been kind of a slob. Yeah, looks very on the edge here. This one hit close to home. 
this whole thing when he's talking to her and he's like, it's me, Bruce. And, you know, she just you can just see the damage that he did to her, like the mental damage too. I mean, not just crippling her, but like just the whole, you know, stripping of her clothes and taking the pictures of her and just it and taking her dad. Like she's just not OK. And I, I think that's it's, it's so powerful and just disheartening. Yeah, like her, just her eyes are wide in terror, and this is a really hard thing. And there's been a lot of, you know, feminist critique for this, and you know they're not wrong. (laughs) Like this is this is a very kind of misogynist book. It is the '80s, though. Yeah, and it's just more stating a fact of that something of this would have been more acceptable and seen as normal, where now we see it for what it is. So, I mean, I just, yeah. like, I just like putting perspective into what was going through the author's mind when they did something versus how you might see it. I don't know if they meant it that way or they were just seeing it where, you know, in the 80s more, you you know, you didn't you were starting to have, you know, in the 70s, 80s, you're having more women heroes and more women being powerful characters. But that still had you still had a lot of damsels in distress. And there was this one. It's really interesting, too, because Alan Moore did an interview in Wizard magazine in 2004 where he had a problem with the fact that he wrote the story crippling Barbara Gordon. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Like was he, I was understand. It I get it. It was his choice. Okay. Then I don't like, I understand if you were like, okay, they told me to do it. I liked my paycheck. I wrote the story, but if it was from people like his choice to write what he wrote, unless he just changed, you know, years later. Well, let me, let me read you the quote here. Sure. It says, I asked DC if they had any problem with me crippling Barbara Gordon, who was Batgirl at the time. And I remember I spoke to Len Wine, who was our editor on the project. He said, yeah, okay, cripple the bitch. It was probably one of the areas where they should have framed me in, but they didn't. Okay. So not only does that speak to the misogyny of the story, but, you know, DC Comics at the time as well. Yeah. Which is... That is kind of fucking gross. Because I understand if you're like, well, it'll make a good story. We'll sell more book, cripple the character. But when you add cripple the bitch, you just kind of like, I know that would have been more. I mean, I don't want to say acceptable because probably wasn't even acceptable in the eighties, but it's just that, that very manly, you know, mindset of how these comics, it was a boys club. And plus she, I mean, she is fictional. So, I mean, that is an important part, but still the, the mindset of, you know, calling her a bitch and seeing women as less that, that wasn't just a fictional thing. That was a real thing for some of these people probably. Yeah. And you see a lot of that reflected in the media of the time. And this is, you know, Barbara Gordon's constantly brought up with the concept of, you know, fridging female characters in which you just kind of kill them to give the narrative push that you need. Okay. I mean, because she was Batgirl at this time, and and she's not Batgirl after this. It's, I mean, it gets in, gets even. I, I don't know. The part with with Gordon is pretty fucked up too, though. Oh yeah, let's yeah, let's get into that because uh, you have a bunch of like I'm assuming pr- people that would have been in in the circus act, which are like three different very short people who are kind of deformed that are dressed up in weird outfits. One's in a tutu, one's like a bondage gear looking weird ass thing. And they have little Cupid wings. It's very strange. It is. And God, you know, this book, it's just really hard to talk about and try to remain PC because like, there's just so much in this book and I'm not trying to, you know, be the PC police or anything, but there's just so much wrong with this book. 
I mean, and, I, it's interesting. Like, I, I mean, I understand what they're doing. Like, to they're degrading him. They're stripping him naked, which is a thing that's been going on for thousands of years if you want to humiliate someone you want to reduce them like they did it with prisoners i mean you it was a thing you strip them naked and then make them you know one you're you're going to be more susceptible to cold but you also the humiliation is going to you know beat in your brain yeah and then he they parade him out into public past our good friend on the wobbly elephant i who, see what you if mean you look at this yeah <laughs> he is like much more... his eyes have gone yellow yeah his skin is a dark gray now so I that's some, that's like some clever coloring. It's maybe been what a couple days or so, or maybe you know has. I don't think it's been that long. He's been missing, right? And then you see like the so, few, you see the bunch of different um, carnival freaks in quotations, we'll say, and that are working with a Joker. And then they they've been shocking Gordon and dragging him by a leash, and then they bring him in front of the Joker, who's sitting on a throne of like mannequin baby. Yeah, in a like a tilt a whirl car that's been modified. With burning so heads have, on the sides. Yeah. You got the king of madness, and this is his crazy throne, as I'm going to call it. Because it really is. It looks like the stuff of nightmares. It's also referenced in other media later, too. <laughs> and Batman Arkham Asylum, he's on a throne like this at one point. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a scene. you remember. Well, I, I played Arkham Asylum before I read this book, and I played Arkham Asylum a few times. And I've also was reading references, <laughs> so it reminded me of it. But it's uh, that's a powerful scene. Like I, I like when he's sitting on that throne. He's like, "You're going mad." When Gordon asks, you know, what's happening? Yep. And basically, this is you know Joker's whole thing. He wants to take Commissioner Gordon, the symbol of law and justice, and break him down, make him go crazy, show everybody that you're just one bad day away from losing your mind and like that. turning out like him. Gosh, does that sound familiar? Where have I seen that before? Falling down? Falling down. Oh, the Dark Knight movie. Oh. Yeah, this is the same thing that Joker does to Harvey Dent. Oh, and he does say that too, doesn't he? We're all yep. one bad day from... Okay. I haven't seen Dark Knight. Now, we'll have to bring you back when I do cover that series at some point. Oh, yeah. It'll be a while. To say about those movies. It'll, be, it'll be years, but at some point I'm planning on doing it, all three of those. But that's not something I'm... Yeah. That's a, that's a future plan. But it's Fair just, enough. It's a, it's a good scene. I like that where, you know, Gordon's like, I remember. And he's like, remember, oh, that's a dangerous thing. I wouldn't go remembering. Like, I, I, I like that where he talks about the past and how you don't want to remember. Because memories are, are no good, which he's partly talking about himself and about what happened to him, which you find out a little bit later. And then they put him on a freaking like little train car. They go in like a ghost house, I guess. And then they force him into this ride. It's, yep. But before we get to that, before we get to what's in the ride, we have another flashback. This is another really like this is kind of where you kind of feel for him. So he's sitting in the bar with the mafia guys. They're they're going to go. It's time for them. And the reason they recruited Joker, if we haven't said yet, is they he used to work at Ace Chemicals, but he quit. And they want to get into the place next to Ace Chemical, which is a card factory. And they need somebody. Well, one, he's kind of he's just a patsy, but they need someone that knows the area to lead them where they're going. Yep. And cops come in looking for our comedian friend who at this point still doesn't have a name. Oh, yeah, you're right. They never do give him a name. Yep. I like this where they're they, they come to the table and the two mafia guys cover their cover, you know, turn away and cover their faces while, while he's talking to him. They bring up they bring, you know, they bring the comedian outside and they talk about 
know, how his wife died. But they're very, like, matter of fact, like, sir, I'm sorry, but your wife had an accident this morning, apparently testing a baby bottle heater. There was an electric electrical short and, uh, well, she died, sir. I'm sorry. And I like, he's just like, what? <laughs> I like the I like the punchline pause in that middle panel there. There's just a panel of the cop smoking a cigarette. Yeah. And then the comedian's like, what? <laughs> like, you can almost... I don't know. It's just, it's so weird. The dramatic pause and you realize, okay, so maybe this is a story that we're getting told that is being embellished for drama's sake, because that's a perfect pause for reaction. A personal story to bring on that too about death, but it's just, I mean, because it also makes sense. Like, how do you, like, it is not, I had found out firsthand, unfortunately, earlier in 2020 when my father-in-law passed away. And I found him and I had to tell my wife that her dad had had passed and we weren't expecting it. And I remember the cop being like, well, do you want me to do it? I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm like, it's not, it's, I need to do it. I'm thinking to myself, it's like, you know, and, and you know, I had, you know, when I read this comic, that kind of dropped me back to that. Made me think about like, you know, that when you're somebody else, especially someone that has no connection to either party telling somebody it's a different, I mean, sure, you can show emotion. You can say, I'm sorry, but it's not. At the end of the day, it doesn't affect you as much. And it, I don't know, it just made me really think about that when I had to tell her what happened. I mean, and then after, <laughs> and after that, the detective just kind of continues like, look, it's one in a million accident. They got more details at the hospital. There's no hurry, implying like, well, what, what are you hurrying for? She's already dead. Yeah. If I was you, I'd have another drink. What the hell? <laughs> but again, if it's the 1930s and 1940s, it kind of fits that mentality. Where mm-hmm. alcohol, I mean, alcohol has always been a big thing, but I feel alcohol was bigger after prohibition and everything. And, you know, they're like, just go drink it off, like man up and drink it off. Kind of. That's how I took it. That toxic masculinity thing. <clears throat> and I like and when then, he goes back and he tells the, the mafia guys, I don't need to do this anymore. She's dead. There's no point. And they're like, the deal's a deal. <laughs> Nobody backs out, buddy. And, and then the, you, oh, God. You notice the way that he show they they show his arms, his hands kind of draped across his head in grief, and the very next mm-hmm. panel, the next page, they show Gordon doing the same thing. Oh yeah, that is something that is done a lot. A lot of the transitions between the flashback and even just different scenes, like going back to the hospital where Barbara's gripping on Batman's cape. In the next on the next page, the uh, carnival freaks are doing that exact same pose while they're ripping open Gordon, uh, Commissioner oh. Gordon's shirt. Like there is a lot of mirroring in this story, and I really feel like that's because you know Batman and Joker are kind of mirrors. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. That probably you know that was probably done, of course, on purpose. And oh, more than likely. Oh yeah, I mean Alan Moore. Now the is interesting not thing. The interesting thing about that picture in the flashback where he's got his hands crossed in front of his face, did you happen to see the people that are looking that are behind him? Uh, not real. I'm looking at him now, a lady and a random guy. Yeah, but look at those smiles. Oh, they have Joker smiles. Are. Oh, yeah. Okay, I didn't catch that before. Yep. Okay. And that's just another hint that maybe this story isn't completely on the level in my eyes. And. As he's as he's going through the cart ride, and there and Joker starts singing, and I was trying to figure out what tune this you would do this to. I was singing it when I was reading it, but I can't like figure out what kind of tune you're supposed to go. I mean, I'm assuming it's kind of like '40s tune. Oh yeah, but no, I could see where it could be a song. It's just you got to find the right tune to it. Like I go loony as a light bulb batter bug, simply loony something foam to chew the rug. Mister, life is swell in a padded cell. It'll chase away, blues away. You can trade your gloom for a rubber room injection twice a day. That's all I took it. Yep, 
<laughs> like it's, it'd be a fun song if it wasn't so damn dark. Yeah. Skulloony like an acid casualty or a moony or a preacher or TV. When the human race wears an ancient face, when the Obama hangs overhead, when your kid turns blue, it won't worry you. You can smile and nod instead. It's just, it's really messed up. <laughs> it is really messed up. But he's got like a whole dance squad with him too. He Joker uh, was the original that. TikTok. <laughs> okay. That's not, I was not expecting that to be on this show. Okay. Yeah, well, well, thank why you. Not? <laughs> <laughs> and but then is, as Gordon proceeds down, this is where we get to the really squicky part of the whole thing. It's the most fucked up part of this book. Yeah, because the Joker has undressed Barbara and is not only showcasing her in, you know, their most vulnerable period, completely naked. But this is immediately after she was shot and paralyzed and her assailant is tormenting her father with these things. Now, again, this is using Barbara's suffering as a narrative device and really kind of doesn't make me happy at all. I'm really kind of annoyed. But <laughs> even besides that, even if you just look at what's being done, Jesus Christ. They also move her like you can see pictures of her of her ass and stuff like he flips her over after she's been shot and taking more pictures of her. And again, I think it, it speaks very much to sexual abuse, like the idea that he could have raped her. They never say it in this book, but that's I mean, but it's just such a such a messed up scene. Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> it really is. And the fact look, I'm not going to say that the fact that this happens in one of the books that is considered one of the quote best Batman stories means anything about the people reading the comics and making these lists, but I'm also not going to not say that. <laughs> I mean, I, as a story over, like, I understand what they're going for, but you could have, at least there's no, you don't see any nudity, but still, it's just the fact that you take this character and put him in the situation. And then you have like this type of, of rape overtone and, abuse in such a it's pretty messed up and the way they it's almost glamorizing barbara's suffering yeah i mean i know yeah i was trying to think i i know it's like it's also in the movie which i want to talk about at the end of this but i don't remember <sighs> very well but it's just it's so i mean it's on all these tv screens that he's riding through this cart and he's just seeing and i mean we don't see any nudity but you can assume that what he would be seeing is nudity full-blown like i mean that's got to be so messed up to see too yeah, and you know, there's there's just so much going wrong with that. So let's move past that, please. Okay, and, and then it jumps <laughs> back. Then it jumps back to Batman, and he's beating up random goons trying to find out where the Joker is. But he's not asking them where the Joker is. He's showing them a wanted poster. He goes to the Penguin, shows them a poster, shows some mafia guy a poster. He shows some some prostitutes a poster of Joker, and I'm just want to be like, couldn't he just say? I mean, you think people? I feel like at this point people know who the Joker is. Yeah. Especially Penguin. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure everybody knows who the Joker is, but whatever, you know, it's a good way to get, you know, interrogation across without having any words. I, I do like it. <laughs> and I like how he doesn't figure out where the Joker is. It isn't until the Joker sent him a letter with a ticket to the carnival where he's at. And that's how he finds out where he is. And he heads to the carnival. World's greatest detective, my ass. And then it shows where, you know, Gordon is all, you know, kind of broken after what happened. And they throw him in a cage because they're waiting for Batman to show up. This is all planned. Joker had the whole everything planned out and this is what he wanted. And then it kicks back to the black and white scene again, where now they're about to go to the chemical factory. And he's, you know, they, they give him the red hood. He puts on the red hood. He can't see very well. And it, it's interesting because it doesn't take long before the, mo the mafia guys are walking with their security guard. They get mad at him. Like, you said there was no security. And then they start shooting. 
And it's another one of those scenes where you, not everything is like you said, you know, black and black and white, except for the as the guy's getting shot through the head, and you have all the blood splatter and it splatters on the comedian's outfit. And even one of the guys is like, "Don't shoot me! He's the ringleader." You know, he's just a patsy. Yep, pure patsy. But here again, you have that. Like this is straight up homage to Frank Miller, I would think, because this was very much what he did, like black and white with, you know, a very stark red being the only color I, in a lot of things. I have an off topic question, but is it is it just me or every time I hear the word Patsy, there's one person name that comes to my mind from history every single time. Patsy Klein? Oswald. Uh, <laughs> OK, just me. Huh? <laughs> every time I say Patsy, all I think of is Oswald. I'm just a Patsy. Yeah, I mean, there is that. And then <laughs> I, I think of Patsy Klein, the singer, who did that, the song Crazy. logical thing to think of. <laughs> and like I said, I love history. But Logic's history. overrated. But just like, and then you see the Red Hood running, you know, he's trying to get away. And then Batman shows up and tells the police, I got this. I'll take care of it. And the co- the Batman's costume is the very early costume with the really big ears. And I don't like it, but it's and cool the really they drew it like spikes that. there. Yeah. yeah. Like, I really appreciate the way that they did that and they don't know who he is and then human bat yep human bat guy which is a better name than batman (laughs) and then he tries to stop the red hood but the red hood jumps into the chemical to escape from batman and does escape kind of yeah like you see him outside but you also see the cape looming in the background so batman sees him and he's there yeah he just doesn't go after for some reason yep and you know he Gets the hood off and sees his face in a reflection. Another reflection, good figure. (laughs) And from there, you get one of the most iconic pictures of the Joker, I think, in all time. Yes. You know, fingers in the hair, hair, green hair twisting around, eyes and mouth bleeding, backgrounds nothing but ha ha ha. Like it is, I don't know, to me, the prototypical Joker. Like, This is a guy who has lost his mind, who is just laughing at everything he has been through. And you can almost see the break with reality. If you buy that that actually happened. I don't, again, I don't trust the narrator in any of this because, you know, the narrator is not trustworthy. (laughs) Exactly. It's cool. I I like how you have that. and And it does make sense. Like you have someone who went through a very traumatic experience, lost his wife. And then also after losing his wife, you know, he also gets in the, you know, put inside these things, you know, inside all these chemicals that completely just change him. Yep. And this, uh, God, then we get back to the modern day. Jim Gordon is in a cage and it's a nice little bit of almost, again, mirroring, showing the opposite of what would happen. Here you have, you know, the quote, carnival freaks, unquote, laughing at the normal man. Or the average man, to put it in Joker's words. Physically unremarkable, it has a it has instead a deformed set of values. And the entire time, like when I read this, not not the most recent time, but before the movie came out, I heard it in my head just as Mark Hamill's voice. <laughs> okay. From I like see that. from the Joker in the animated series. And then when the movie came out, well, I got my dream come true. Kind of. God, I hate that movie. We'll get to that though. Yeah, I do want to talk a little bit about it before we wrap up the episode. Oh, yeah. Not too deep, but a little but, bit. But you get the Joker going on, you know, this whole spiel about how, oh, you have to go crazy in this world. Otherwise, 
what's the point of living? Everything is horrible. And then you see the headlights of the Batmobile getting closer. And then, you know, Batman just comes in with the super sweet old school Batmobile. I don't like this Batmobile. It's super sweet. <laughs> it's, yeah. I was trying to look up it right now to see what the Batmobile looked like at this time. It did not look like that. So, again, a throwback to an older time. Right. But also another, you know, bad design out of time. That's kind like, of how I felt with this book. Been, yeah. Like, it's chronologically all over the place. Like, there's there's stuff from every Batman era so that you can't put it in one place. I like how then, like, when, they, when he starts fighting the Joker, you know, they have them fighting. They're, they're not talking to her, but it has the whole line from earlier. Perhaps you'll kill me. Perhaps I'll kill you. Perhaps sooner. Perhaps later. As they're fighting for, like, a, a couple panels. And I thought that was really cool. Oh, yeah. And then and because, play. I mean, I was just going to say, that's how these characters talk. Yeah. You know, they don't talk by having a sit down. They talk by constantly fighting with each other. And then he ends up burning his arm with the acid. And I like how you see Bruce pull out some concoction that he has and to, you know, to, to neutralize the acid on his arm. Then he go, he, he rescues Gordon. Then he goes, you know, and he follows Joker into like this madhouse. And I thought that was cool. Like it, all the, all the walls are, are supposed to be mirrors. I'm assuming are just joke, like a messed up looking face. And then you have him almost fall into a pit with acid tipped spikes or poison tipped spikes or something. I thought that was all really cool. And Joker's just, you know, saying shit, running by a, a hall of mirrors and he, and one one thing that I laughed about, because, you know, I love history. He's like, you know what triggered the last world war argument over how many telegraph poles Germany owed his war debt creditors? Telegraph poles. Funny thing is that he's not wrong. That played a part. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I just, again, I love World War II. But on that same page, you get the Joker acknowledging that this entire book up until this point has been pointless. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is it with you? What made you what you are? Girlfriend killed by the mob, maybe? Brother carved up by some mugger? Something like that, I bet. Something like that. Something like that happened to me, you know. I'm not exactly sure what it was sometimes. I remember it one way, sometimes another. If I'm going to have a pass, I prefer it to be multiple choice. <laughs> I like that. And <laughs> that just, everything that has happened in this book in the past has pretty much just been negated right here. Like any sympathy that you may have had should have just been like, whatever. He lied to me through song. I hate it when people do that. <laughs> Again, it's a story where you like, you know, you know, a, a, a tool used by many fictional writers is, can you trust the narrator telling you the story? And in this case you can, I think that's also very cool. Yeah, And it's like, I feel like when Batman's in the scene, like he's our tie to reality in a way. Oh, I can definitely agree with that. Yeah, like when he when he's going on, this is what's actually happening. And I'm not sure if we can trust anything else in the book. But then <laughs> the really interesting thing is Batman busts through a, a funhouse mirror, grabs the Joker. And there is, if you look in the back, there's a distortion of Batman and Joker almost having similar profiles. Because of the distortion of the funhouse mirror, they almost kind of oh, look the same face shape. That's cool. With a long nose. Yeah. Okay, that is cool. I do like when he and when when we right before he does that, he's like, Why aren't you laughing? And then they fight like, a little he bit. Looks, he looks so upset that Batman doesn't get the joke. Uh, and they, they fight for a little bit. He throws him out a window. He pulls a gun and the gun is click, click, click. It's empty. And the thing that's interesting to me is he hasn't fired his gun once 
during this encounter. So it shows he, he came with a gun empty. He never planned to shoot Batman. He never planned to kill him. He doesn't want to kill him. He just, I think that's a cool thing, too. Like he's like, it's empty. Because he knew it was empty. He didn't put any guns in it. He didn't put any bullets in it. Yep. And then, oh, God, that this right here is kind of the only moment that I have sympathy for the Joker. After he's, after he fires his gun and then the flag comes out that says click, click, click. And he says, well, what are you waiting for? I shot a defenseless girl. I terrorized an old man. Why don't you kick the hell out of me and get a standing ovation from the public gallery? He's just resigned to the fact that he's going to get his ass kicked. He doesn't, it's almost like he doesn't care anymore. The fight's just gone. Because it wasn't about the fight. It's all about trying to bring Batman down to his level. Yeah, it's I feel all like- about the yeah, one of the biggest things about Joker is he wants to show the world that Batman and Joker are the same. They're it just he's the same person. He just doesn't, you know, if he would just kill, they'd be the same. Like you know, the old Batman quote, if 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 you kill someone, now there's just two killers. There's just another killer in the room. There's still one killer in the room or something like that. But it's it's kind of it is powerful. And I do like that where he's like cuz earlier Gordon had made the comments like you have to bring him in by the book. So they're standing out there in in the rain talking and we tell him you got to do it by the book. And then for some reason, Joker's like, you know what? This situation reminds me of a joke. See, there were these two guys in a lunatic asylum. And one night, one night, they decide they don't like living in an asylum anymore. They decide they're going to escape. So, like, they get up on the roof and they're just across this narrow gap. They see the rooftops of the town stretching away in the moonlight, stretching away to freedom. Now, the first guy, he jumps right across with no problem. But his friend, his friend dared not make the leap, you see. You see, he's afraid of falling. So then the first guy has an idea. He says, hey, I have my flashlight with me. I'll shine it across the gap between the buildings. You can walk along along the beam and join me. But the second guy just shakes his head. He says, he says, what do you think? I am crazy. You turn it off when I was halfway across. <laughs> and I, I, I know, I honestly think it's funny. I, I do. It is, it is pretty amusing, but and even Batman sees the humor in it. And then we get to one of the most contested endings of all time in a comic book ever. He starts laughing. <laughs> Cause all of a sudden Batman starts laughing. They're both laughing. Lights are all showing up. The cops have just arrived. He grabs Joker Looks like he's going to choke him, and then the comic ends. But the laughter cuts off, and we don't actually see anything happen. We like they're laughing. There's siren noises, then there's laughter and siren noises, then just siren noises, and then nothing. I do have an answer to you, though. What at least Alan? What Alan Moore said. In, in The Killing Joke, the ending was ambiguous, leaving the fate of Batman Joker to the reader. However, on August 2013, comic book writer Grant Morrison was a guest in Kevin Smith's podcast, Fat Man on Batman, this week, where he explained how he interpreted the book's ending. No one gets the end because Batman kills the Joker. That's why it's called The Killing Joke. The Joker tells The Killing Joke at the end. Batman reaches out and breaks his neck, and that's why the laughter stops and the light goes out. That was the last chance at crossing that bridge. And Alan Moore wrote the ultimate Batman Joker story. He finished it. And yet, I used to think that way, too. But I don't anymore. And let me tell you why. The last panel of the book is just a close-up on raindrops. If you go back to the beginning of the story, the exact same panel. Hmm. So I don't think he killed the Joker. I think the way that they ended that story with the same panel as they started with is just kind of their way of saying Batman won't kill him and Joker won't kill Batman. They're just, this is going to happen again and again, and it's always going to be the same. Okay. That's a good way to interpret. I mean, I saw it as, you know, he's kind of cracked a little bit, but I didn't really see him as him breaking his neck until I read that because it's, you know, very ambiguous. Yeah. I mean, I I thought there was definitely a neck break involved because you could see Batman's <laughs> kind of got his hands in the neck area and the laughter cuts off. So suddenly, like, yeah. that could be a break thing. But the more I think about it, the more I'm like, man, this is just, this is a more bleak ending. I think if Batman would have killed the Joker, that would have been one thing. 
but just the idea that even after all of this, Batman still won't kill him, and it's just going to go on and on in perpetuity. Shit, man, that's depressing. It's it's a weird ending, but it's it meant really to be a is. Because again, I think this book wasn't meant to be part of the canon. It was just meant to be a Batman Joker story. So he could, you know, that's why he did what he wanted. I mean, they reference it and it made it canon later on, but it didn't need to be. It wasn't meant to be, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and you know, I I understand why everybody likes this story. I really do. Like this is, I think IGN rated it like the third best Batman story after The Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One, which you know, fine, I guess, but. I don't know. It's always like, I understand that there's a craft here. And the more you think about it, like actually really dig deep into the story, there's a lot of interesting things that are happening, but I always kind of felt like this one got too much credit. Okay. That's not what I was expecting. I, I know that's not what a lot of people (laughs) expect, but it's, it's interesting because Alan Moore even says, you know, he doesn't think it's a very good book. And Alan Moore, you know, Alan Moore is just, Alan Moore. Well, he hates He's DC kind of too. And he hates everything that's ever been done with his work. Like none of the cinematic adaptations are ever good enough. And this, uh, he just, he says he was just making a point. That there are a lot of similarities between Batman and the Joker. That was the main point. And there's no important human information being imparted because they're just a couple licensed DC characters that don't relate to the real world in any way. Well, he Alan Moore also has, kind of has an issue with DC because they kind of tricked him when it came to Watchmen. So. Oh yeah, I don't know if they tricked That's... him per se, but they he was led to believe he would get the right spec to Watchmen at some point, and he never will because of the way the contract was written. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I don't know. It's a shame because Alan Moore does do some interesting work. Oh yeah, but I don't. Like he's Watchmen. also. He, mm, I don't. I'm gonna have to disagree with you, but. Hey, we'll save that for another time because I'll do an episode on it. I yeah. did an episode on it, but that doesn't exist anymore. So <laughs> yeah. that was one of the ones I lost. Yeah, I think I think the comic is good. I think the movie is fine. And I get about, shit for that every day. You want to mention the little short story that's in the deluxe version that was published in a, in a different comic they add on here at all? I, mean, I don't like touch it. on it. Yeah, I, it, The Innocent Man. Yeah, it's just some weird little story of some guy talking about he wants to kill Batman or he would commit a crime where he'll he would tie a girl up and let her starve to death in a in the sewer. And he just kind of talking about these ideas. It's really I don't like it. I don't like it. There's not much to it. It's just talking about how he would kill Batman and, and then nobody would know it was him. And he talks about Batman fighting Two-Face and Poison Ivy. The only thing I do like it, there's a or in the layer of those three guys with animal masks whose names I can never remember. I have no idea who they are, but I, that part was funny to me. But the interesting thing about this story is that he's making a really interesting statement that all of these, you know, flamboyant villains are never going to be the one that's going to be able to take down Batman. It's just going to be if something ever does kill Batman. It's going to be something simple, something dumb. And like a couple of the last lines, you know, I've always been his greatest fan. I'm also his greatest enemy. Like it's just. Loving something so much that you can kill it. That kind of, there are parallels there with Joker. It's an interesting story. Like, I've read this a few times and don't really know what to make of it. It's just, I don't know. It's it's a strange story. But I also don't think that, you know, it's wrong to be putting it in here. It's unnecessary. Like it's, it's unnecessary. Like, it's not critical. But I feel like having it in here, and I haven't really thought about it enough, but having it in here kind of adds a little something to the story that preceded it. Okay. And 
you know, almost kind of that whole, you know, you gotta, you know, do something. God, what is it? Okay. I figured the only way you can be truly good is if you tried being good and you've tried being bad and being good feels better. And it's talking about, it's gotta be something cruel and horrible and unnecessary and motiveless. So that in a way that's almost kind of like everything that happened in the killing joke. It's cruel. It's horrible. And at the end of the day, it's unnecessary. Yeah. Like all of the events of the killing joke, what did they accomplish? Gordon did not break. Barbara's crippled, but you know, apparently she gets over that at some point. Yeah. They did. Yeah. They write her back as Batman later on in the story, but cause you know, and um, like n- nothing that has any lasting consequence really happens in the story. Unless you think that Batman killed the Joker. I think he did. No, I will disagree. Yeah, <laughs> but that's fine. It's ambiguous for a reason. It's up to your interpretation. And, and then, that, I think, ultimately, is why it's a great story. And you were right, by the way, in your IGN list, it was number three. Yeah, like, I, I feel like that ultimately is why this is a good story, is because it does have that ambiguous ending. It doesn't really give you closure. You kind of just, you make up your own thing. And for Grant Morrison to come along and say that that's definitively what happened. Man! Yeah, he's just <laughs> crazy, man. Come on, Grant Morrison, <laughs> you didn't write this. You didn't do anything for this. It wasn't Grant Morrison. It was Alan Moore, I think. Or did I say Grant Morrison? You said Grant Morrison. Let me reread this because I thought, oh, yep, it was Grant Morrison. Okay, never mind. I was I I was thinking it was Alan Wake or not Alan Wake, <laughs> Alan Moore that said it, and I got confused. My Batman office. Okay, never mind. Now I take back what I yeah. said before. <laughs> but like, even if you know, even if it was true, I don't know. I kind of like my version better. <laughs> Your fake In which sense. Just, yeah. Take back what I was saying now. Now that I know that it wasn't what I thought it was, I was just confused. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, it's still, you know, it. like I said, I thought that for years that, you know, Batman killed the Joker. But, you know, as I started noticing the mirroring in the panels more and then at the front and the end of the story, it just kind of, I don't know, just kind of changed my mind. Okay, I can. Yeah, I can. But, see what uh, I think I think we should touch on how, you know, not only. Is this one of the most, you know, highly thought of Batman stories, but how much it influenced, like just the story influenced Batman as a whole, as far as popular culture? Yeah, because it did have a very powerful effect. Yeah, like like I mentioned, um, you see a lot of parallels in The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's uh, middle film of his Batman trilogy. Uh, you could see a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the influence from this went into Todd Phillips's Joker movie because he's got, you know, the lower class citizen, uh, the stand up comedian. It's a fucked up movie. It is, but not as fucked up as this. No, no, no. Not even close. No, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, it's, it's really influenced a lot of the pop cultural issues we have of Batman. And there was even a cover of a Darkwing Duck comic book. That was an homage to a cover of The Killing Joke, which is <laughs> yep. Darkwing Duck. Is the best. We actually mentioned that in our Darkwing Duck episode a while ago. <laughs> and it's just, ago. It's, <laughs> it's just funny because like a lot of, a lot of things took influence from The Killing Joke, but there's never been an adaptation of The Killing Joke until there was. Okay. I, I saw this movie once in theaters when it came out back in 2016. 
I don't remember anything about it other than I liked it. And I think like and they did add a prologue, which a lot of people don't like because because yep. Batgirl, something happens. They get into and then they get to an argument. They get into a fight, her and Batman, and they end up having sex and it upset a lot of people on a rooftop. And then after that, then they play out the entire events of the killing joke. And I, I don't uh, I, I didn't watch it before this because I don't have access to it online somewhere or own it. And I just. But it didn't bother me. From what I remember in 2016, I had no problem with it. I really enjoyed the movie. And that part didn't bother me because it made you care. The idea is make you care more for Barbara, I guess, or show or, or more, maybe more to show. I should say that Batman had more feelings for her to make it hurt more. But also it makes Batman look kind of like a bad person because she she's a he's her mentor figure. And here he is sleeping with her. So, yeah, and it's not just that. Like, you know, you have sex with Batman to give him more weight at the cost of her suffering. It's the same thing with Gordon. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, ah, come on guys, there are better ways to make things mean something like you didn't honestly, I'll say that that little prologue, I'll just flat out say, don't need it. Don't need it at all. (laughs) You could have just cut it completely and the movie would have been fine. It probably would have been just as I would have enjoyed it. That's why they put it in there. Cause it's like, like 15, 20 minutes of extra footage. Yeah. And it's just, honestly, the kind of killed the movie for me. I really want to rewatch it. I'm, I'm sure I will one of these days. But just having, you know, Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill come back as Batman and Joker, that just, that made me so happy. Yeah. And I know it was a big deal to get Mark Hamill back to do Joker again, because I think he was nearing the end of his career being Joker, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that this was the last Joker thing that he did. Okay, this is also a one night only back when it wasn't theaters too. Yeah, like this was an event. It was cool. What I remember, I really was. I had a good time. I it's been a very long time, and I did have a Batman shirt I wore to this event too. I did not go see it in theaters, but my best friend at the time did, and um, (laughs) she called me up and was like, "Yeah, it was such a great movie." Except, except what? Well, you'll see. And then I watched and I was like, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and number four at IGN list is the long Halloween. <laughs> so and the long Halloween is so much better than this. But, you know, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. No, you can hear all about that in a previous episode. That's hard even published at this point. So go listen to that. Yeah, it's just long Halloween is better. All right. And, and this ready- is it's so short. Like, I don't think we mentioned that. It is so short. It's yeah. I don't know how many pages it is because I did not look that up, but it's not very. It's one little trade. Maybe 40. Yeah, pages. it is one little trade. Um, I think it's closer to uh, 50, 55. OK, with OK, 55 pages with the introduction. So if you actually start at the story, let's see here. Story starts on page 10 and it ends on page 55. That's 45 pages of story. It is a tiny, tiny book. But, you know, it's powerful. And a lot of its best scenes, honestly, are the ones where there is no dialogue. You just let, you know, Brian Boland's art speak for itself. And it's it's great. All right. And should we go? I think we should go to Shelfer Box now. Oh, I think so. All right. And Kenneth, why don't you go first? All right. Now, I know I have not been shy about that. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I don't enjoy in this. I would still put it on the shelf because as much as I may not like some of the story elements, Brian Boland's art is great. And 
should be seen by a lot of people. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. It's going on my shelf 100%. Okay. I wasn't sure what you were going to do, but okay. I'm going to do the same. I'm also going to put this on the shelf. I really enjoyed reading this. I read it twice before we did this episode because I just wanted to read it again. And I really, really enjoyed it. So definitely going on the shelf. All right. All right that's two shelves. <laughs> that's kind of what I expected, though, with this book. Because, it, I mean, yes, it does have a lot of prestige, but it's also it's a really good book. And if you guys really seriously, if you haven't read it or if it's been a while, go back, check it out. You know, see if you still feel the same way about it. That'd be an interesting experiment. I'd love to see what you guys think. And if you read it again after not reading it, let us know. Yes, you can send us an email at GamesMyMomFound at Yahoo.com. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter. Just Google GamesMyMomFound. You'll find us. I'm all over the damn internet at this point. <laughs> so that's why I don't even bother saying any of any of the stuff, like where you can find us. I'm like, mm, not that hard. <laughs> People really want to find us, they'll find us. Yeah, I'm, I'm similarly easy to find if you guys got any hate mail. Uh, <laughs> all right i want to thank you for coming back on again kenneth i want to thank everyone for listening and if you enjoyed this episode we do a bunch of other comic episodes. we've done a bunch of batman episodes too we did batman hush comic at some random point in this history of this, of this podcast we did episode three we covered the batman 1989 genesis game for some damn reason so if you need more batman check that out we also did long halloween not well, anyway, I'm not sure when you're going to hear this, but we did Long Halloween stuff and check that out. And if you enjoy it, we do regular game episodes every week. We do movies. We do comics. We are currently going through the MCU. And a lot of that should be out by the time you hear this. <laughs> so definitely check all those out. I want to give a shout out to our awesome intro and outro, courtesy of Bubby, a.k.a. Mike Stoney from his EP Bite to Bullet, song of the cool kid squad. Definitely check him out. And please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm constantly posting new images of what's going on. I post memes, too. So definitely follow us on there. And again, thank everyone for listening. And we will see you next time, everybody. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.